Well, good morning. Um, with Joe bringing Bob up, I don't feel like I need to do an introduction now. But <laughs> um, I definitely wanted to take a moment. Um, Bethany and I have been associated with NICE, with IFCA, um, for a number of years. As missionaries, we found a lot of our primary, both financial support and spiritual support through them. There are great benefits of being associated with them. And we're thankful for the people. Um, this church, both formally and informally, has been connected with both, too. And so it made sense for us to invite Bob to come this morning. Um, as missionaries, I've talked about people that we really found support from. And Bob and Catherine were one of those couples that we rely on heavily. We've come to trust their wisdom and are thankful for that. And it's interesting because if you look at church ministry, it's the large churches that get a lot of the attention. But what we've learned is there's a lot of wisdom in the smaller churches. And I think you guys probably know that from here and having Everett for so long, that a lot of people will overlook the smaller churches just because they're small. When in actuality, some of the most faithful men are coming out of those churches. And I think NICE is one of those examples. I'm excited that you get to hear or have heard what is going on in the Northwest through them. There are other things going on through other organizations that are exciting. And so I'm just thankful to have Bob this morning and introduce you guys to him. Please spend time with him, um, get to know him, and just ask questions. Um, and a potluck afterwards. And a potluck afterwards. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, I'll let Bob bring the word and just express my thanks to both of you guys for coming this morning. So. Well, thank you, Pastor Robert. It is good uh, to be here again. And uh, one thing I forgot to mention is we do have prayer cards back there. If you don't get anything else, please pray for us. Uh, and we would just love to have you do that. But if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Philippians? Uh, Philippians chapter 4 uh, this morning as we spend some time in God's Word. I appreciate uh, going to churches that have an appreciation for the Word. Uh, we, uh, we can hear a lot of things these days, a lot of uh, uh, ditties and uh, stories and uh, a lot of working around the Word, but not time in the Word. And uh, I appreciate the fact that you are folks of the Word, and uh, that's our, our privilege as we uh, get that opportunity. But Philippians uh, chapter 4 this morning, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 to give you a full context, and then... We'll be looking primarily at verses 4 uh, through 9. So with your Bibles open, if you're uh, able and willing, would you please stand as I read God's Word from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. I'm reading from the NESB uh, this morning. So, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Cynthia to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also who and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, 
whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellent, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to come to uh, the word that you have given to us, your communication uh, to us. Lord, I pray for receptive hearts, receptive minds. Uh, Lord, I pray above all that you would move me out of the way that we might indeed hear from the Spirit of God, uh, the author of our text. And we pray, Father, that you would move in a way that would help us to not just understand facts, but to understand that would not, not, not only change our mind, but change our hearts, that we might walk before you uh, in these days, uh, in the present hour that you have given to us. And so we thank you uh, in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you probably understand that we uh, live in some interesting uh, days today. Uh, as, I, as I look around, I, I am... I'm understanding more and more of why we, even as Christians, find ourselves in anxious moments. Uh, there are times where we are struggling as Christians, admittedly, and uh, we should, that we're human. And we struggle with the various uh, stresses of life, the various uh, things that would uh, cause us to fret, cause us to worry, cause us to get anxious. That's a part of our human nature. Uh, in the scripture, we're never told that we're uh, never going to uh, eliminate those out of our lives. The question is, what do we do with those anxious moments? And that's what I want to look at this moment. I, I remember reading the, the following article that stated, and I quote, Worry is fear's extravagance. It extracts interest on trouble before it comes due. It constantly drains the energy God gives us to face daily problems and to fulfill our many responsibilities. It is therefore a sinful waste. It's an interesting. The article then went on to give the following illustration that you might appreciate. Uh, a woman who had lived long enough to have learned some important truths about life remarked, I've had a lot of trouble, most of which have never happened. <laughs> you ever feel like that? You ever? Yeah, kind of lay awake at nights, uh, just kind of thinking through all the things that could possibly happen to your life, uh, and yet they don't seem to come about. Uh, I'm not so concerned about those things as I am the ones that actually do come to fruition and, and to cause me the, the wakeless nights. And, and there have been many over the last number of weeks, I'll be honest with you, uh, where I've wake, woken up at 3 o'clock in the morning with this pit in my stomach, and I've had to, I've had to turn that to the Lord, and, and it's been interesting because it's very difficult to preach a sermon to someone and not live it, so uh, that's the reality. It was uh, John Piper, a pastor and author, who suggests, and I quote, if I keep God himself central and lift him up week after week and do everything I can to make him look and feel magnificent, then the very issue that I'm dealing with will solve itself a hundred, uh, or will solve a hundred problems uh, in my life that I don't even know is the solution to the problems. He goes on to say that we're made for God. We're made to see Him and know Him and tremble in His presence and be awed by Him. 
And if we are seeing him as he is and responding as we ought, there are a hundred things that will get worked out in our brains, in our hearts and circumstances that would not have gotten worked out had we been presented with a lesser God, unquote. That, that what John is saying is that we need to have a high view of God and a low view of our circumstances. The tendency is to elevate our difficult situations, those things that are making us anxious and worried, and have a very puny view of God. We need to flip that back around to where it needs to be. And I, I'm confident that that's what Philippians 4 is all about. It's helping us to come back to getting our eyes off of what's going on around us and get them on God. Because, folks, there are things that you know that right now are existing that none of us 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, whatever dream we're facing as a culture and the pressures that are now facing the church. I have said I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. I'm not even the grandson of a prophet, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out the culture is not out for the good of the church. And we are facing things and will continue to face things that are going to finally come to the church and say, do you really stand firm on the truth of the gospel? And that's where we're at. And I think Paul has a way of bringing out to us, how do we do this thing called Christianity with all the things we're facing with any type of positive attitude? And the Apostle Paul chose to find his joy in God in spite of the circumstances. The background to all of this, and you can read it later, is Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are in a dungeon and at midnight chose to sing and rejoice in all that was going on. So the question then that faces us today, and it becomes the premise of what we're looking at, is how do you relieve the anxieties in life? I mean, is it even possible to get rid of the anxious, worrying, fretting things that we deal with day by day as people of God? How do you deal with those? How do you deal with the panics? How do you deal with those nights when you wake up like me with the pit in your stomach wondering, how's this ever going to get worked out? Well, that's what we want to look at in Philippians chapter 4. I'm, matter of fact, I'm, I'm a practical enough guy that I'm just going to give you three ways we can relieve the anxieties in life, okay? Three ways the scripture tells us. Not Bob, this is the scripture, okay? Uh, and you have the outline there in your bulletin, but here's the first way. Simply rejoice consistently. I know it sounds simple, doesn't it? Rejoice consistently in the midst of whatever it is that we're dwelling. That's verses 4 and 5. Where Paul, or Paul reminds us again, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. There it is. Rejoice consistently. Why? Because, first of all, joy is not an option. Now, we take it as an option, but it is not an option. If you are a believer today, you have no choice but to be joyful in whatever circumstances you find yourselves. It is not an option. In the epistles, uh, joy or its equivalent rejoice, at least in, in the book of Philippians, you find at least 14 times in the New American Standard Bible this aspect of joy. And so that's why people have often said the book of Philippians 
uh, key word is joy or rejoice. And I, and I would agree it's one of them. We don't have time to get into the other, which I think is the area of unity. If you want a good book on joy and unity, this is the book right here, Philippians. It's a great book in that respect. But what I want you to understand, uh, by the way, here's, here's, a little, here's a little tidbit for you. Verses 4 through 9 has, um, I believe, nine commands. Nine commands. Now, I didn't learn a lot in school. I hated school, but I learned one thing in school. A command is something you have not an option to do. Okay? When I tell my kids, uh, go clean your room, that's not a suggestion. It needs to be done. And God has many, many commands for us as his children. Here is one of them. By the way, uh, rejoice is a command, but God knowing us in the midst of our circumstances and the things we fret and we get concerned about, he thought, that might not be enough, so I'm going to give you that command again. So twice he commands us, rejoice, rejoice. Now, here's a, here's a description of joy that I think uh, is probably one of the best I've ever seen. By the way, I probably should put this little uh, asterisk next to joy. Joy is not happiness, okay? Don't get that mixed up. Happiness is something we get in life, and it's if everything's going well, we're happy. If things are not going well, uh, we're not happy. Joy uh, oversees, overshadows all of that, okay? And joy is different. But this description is one of the best I've ever seen. This is by John MacArthur, who says, Joy is not a feeling. Okay, we need to start right there. Joy is not a feeling. It is the deep-down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and for God's own glory. And thus, all is well, no matter what the circumstances. I'm going to read that again because it's, a, it's an interesting statement. If we grasp this, then you have got it. Joy is not a feeling. It is the deep-down confidence that God is in control, and I would say absolute control, of everything for the believer's good. The end product is our good and God's own glory. And thus, all is well, no matter what the circumstances. I had to remind myself of that this week when I got into a mediation uh, circumstance. I was asked to sit in on two parties that were, you know, not getting along real well, uh, which is something we end up doing. And I had to remind myself, and I reminded the gentleman as we were sitting there, everything, no matter what we do today, uh, everything should be to the honor and the glory of God. That's we got to come back to that now and then. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks, uh, a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Why can I rejoice in the Lord? Why can my soul exult in my God? Because he has saved me and he has declared me righteous. Amen? I don't deserve that. It's by his mercy and his grace. Psalm 94 says, When my anxious thoughts multiply within me. You been there? Multiply over and over. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. What are God's consolations right here? If we're not in this book, we're not going to be consoled with the situations of life. James 1.2 says, Count it all joy, brethren, when you enter various trials. Again, that is not an option. James says, this is what we need to do. 
We need to take a ledger of our lives and say over and over again, I need to be joyful. Joy, again, as I said, is the confidence that God's in control of all things. And I can stick, take a step back, and like the song says, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Why? Because I have a God who's in charge of all things. Joy is not an option. Uh, the second thing I would bring out is in this area of rejoicing consistently, which is not necessarily in the text, but I think it's inferred in the text, and that is that because we do this because joy brings healing to our souls. You probably have read at some time or another or heard Proverbs 17:22. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Joy, a joyful heart is good medicine. It's healing to us. So I was reminding myself this morning of Psalm 95, verse 1, where it says, Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. I think there's something about music. I, I love music. I grew up in a, in a music family. My dad uh, was a, uh, loved Southern gospel, had his own country western bands, uh, three of them to be exact. And uh, so I grew up in a musical home and uh, learned different musical uh, uh, attributes. And I just, I love music. There is something about music, uh, about humming, about singing, uh, and thinking through things like rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You know that little chorus? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There's something about singing that over and over. Uh, there's another one I've shared with the NICE family. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, joy is the flag that is flown in the castle of my heart. That's, you're probably too young. Okay, that, that's wild bad. Okay. But there's something about the song, something about singing, something about moving over. Every so often, I like to go to bed. I put Pandora on, on good Christian contemporary, just instrumental songs. They're mostly hymns. And I go to sleep with that because it helps me then to wake up, hopefully, and then go through the night without these anxious thoughts upon me. There's something about the joyful heart. Now, now the reality is, it will not bring healing to the soul if we're allowing one thing to exist in our lives. And that's what I called with the NICE family, the joy killers. You know what the joy killers are? They are things like a negative spirit or a bitter, angry spirit uh, or things like complaining rather than being thankful. Uh, they're, uh, one, one of our missionaries calls them robbers, the joy robbers. Things like uh, a critical spirit. Uh, either individually or as a corporate body. Those things will kill us quickly, and they will kill the testimony of the church. Because a joyful heart is good medicine. And there's something about depending upon God's word and looking at God's word in that respect. So back to Philippians. Uh, Philippians just reminds us that joy needs to be a consistent day-by-day, moment-by-moment attitude of the heart. And if you're not there, pray that God would get you on your knees and help you to have that joyful, consistent spirit. Now, there's something about that joyful healing that God gives that also then lead, should lead to a countenance. It's really something when somebody tells me, I got joy in my heart, and he looks like he just got weaned on dill pickles. It doesn't work. 
But there's something about the joy of my heart that knows that God is in charge of all things that helps me then day by day to rejoice so consistently because I can show that then in my attitude and what's going on. So if we want to find relief to anxieties, one of the very first things we need to do, according to Paul, is to rejoice consistently. Now, I think it's good that Paul didn't stop there, okay? By the way, verse 5 is a sense in which there's a relationship that's connected with joy uh, and this consistent joy. How do I know that? Because he says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Why did he say that? Well, I read earlier in the first part, in the first couple of verses, that there's a problem in the Philippian church. And it's two women that aren't getting along together. There's anxiety all over the place with these two women. And Paul appreciated the ministry. They, they, they had a great struggle with the Apostle Paul, yet they're not getting along. And Paul says here, we need to have a spirit that's gentle with one another. How do we do that? Well, when we're rejoicing together and we're on the same plane, we move forward in that respect. But second, if we're going to find relief from our worry and our anxieties, we need to second, pray fervently. Pray fervently. Notice in verses 6 and 7, when it comes to the anxious thought that the Apostle Paul says, uh, be anxious for nothing. By the way, again, a command. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I put a quote in your bulletin that by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, just, I really appreciate this. He says, it matters little what form of prayer we adopt or how many words we use. Why does he say that? Because there are some people that think the form is what's important. No, it's not. It's not the form. It's not the structure. It's the reality of, of talking with God. And you can use all kinds of words. I've seen people use all kinds of fancy words in prayer. And that's okay if that's between them and God. But that's not the point. Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes on to say, what matters is the faith, that is that confidence, that belief which lays hold of God, grabs a hold of the, the God that we serve, knowing that he knows our needs before we even ask him. That is what gives Christian prayer its boundless confidence and its joyous certainty. God hears me, and he knows before I ask. I don't ask for his sake, I ask for my sake. It's a reminder to me that he knows my needs before I ask, and I am confident. That's why the scripture says if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. That's a confidence to us. Now, as we move through verses 6 and 7, and, and do we, we understand this praying fervently, there are some things we're told to do and some things we're told not to do in, a, in an outcome of that. Uh, what we're exhorted not to do is don't be anxious or worried, okay? So look at it kind of this way. If, if the Apostle Paul were here, he'd probably be sitting down with us across from the table with a cup of coffee, good cup of coffee, of course, uh, and you, we'll talk about that later. But having the opportunity just for across the table to be able to say to one another, we got to stop doing this. We gotta stop this. And that's what I remind myself at night at three o'clock in the morning. I turn my thoughts and wait a minute, I can't do this. 
This is not faith and confidence in the sovereign God who's in control of all things. The moment I start getting anxious and worried and fretting and losing sleep over this, I have moved myself away from the trust in the sovereign God that I supposedly believe in. We're exhorted here, don't be anxious for anything, for nothing, not one little thing. Do not be anxious. So in many respects, the Apostle Paul is saying there, there's a forbidding of the continuance of something that the Philippians were already doing. It's almost like, stop doing it. I mean, if, if you find yourself there, stop. How we handle worry is a barometer of our trust in God. Anxiousness affects how we feel. It affects how we think. It affects how we do things. The problems, folks, just to be honest with you, may not go away. Okay? I know that's encouraging, but they may not go away. The trials may not vanish. That's why James says, count it all joy when you encounter these trials. There's an expectation you're going to go through them. But joy should be on the front end of that before you get there. Know that in your mind. They may not go away. The difficulties tempting us to fear may not be alleviated. But we can live without worry. We can conquer our anxieties and our fears. It's an interesting word, this word anxious. It, it uh, means division or share. Uh, to apportion something. It, it, meant, it came to mean to be occupied or distracted in that respect. The problem was there was habitual worrying happening in the lives of the believers. There, I, would, I would almost guarantee that's happening in this room today. That there come in, we probably came in here with some anxieties, some worries, some that have been going on and on for a while. But this word often sees uh, a feeling of uneasiness about something. It's to be troubled over something. And, and in other words, it means to be pulled in two different directions. What are those two different directions? One direction is what I just said at the forefront, that God is a sovereign and in control of all things. He knows what's best for me, and I'm dealing with this problem. And it depends on how much attention we give to one of those as to how far that's going to pull us and divide us. And I, I believe that the Apostle Paul is saying, humanly speaking, there's a tug of war that goes on with our spirit. Because we know what's right, and we know what we should not be doing. The Bible Exposition Commentary notes, the old English root from which we get our word worry means to strangle. Worry affects our thinking, our digestion, and even our, co our coordination. Isn't that really interesting? Worry affects our thinking, our digestion, and even our coordination. Anxieties pull us from trusting God to leaning on our own understanding. And what does Proverbs say? Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge God, and he will what? Direct your path. So we're encouraged. Exhort it not to do this. Now, what are we encouraged to do? We're encouraged to talk with God. And matter of fact, Paul takes three different words in the area of communication with God and lays it out in that sense. And what he does is he uses one contrasting word to, to note that. He says, be anxious for nothing, but here's what you do. Here's what you stop doing. Here's what you start doing. And what you start doing is you start praying. You start petitioning God. And you start requesting of God. Those three words of communication 
with the Almighty God, who's sovereign and in control of all things, you pray. That's just a general term to talk with God. Then you petition. You give specific petition and supplication, usually on behalf of someone or something that's going on. There's some problem uh, that's happening. And then there's requests, which are seeking specific answers for a specific need. Uh, an illustration of this in the book, In a Growing Healthy Church, the authors note about the spiritual power of prayer that, I quote, it is the supernatural work of a supernatural God invading the natural world of our lives. We're not used to the sovereign supernatural work of God. That's where we want to be. Uh, so we're exhorted to stop being anxious. We're encouraged to start talking with God about it. And I think it's being specific with God. It's not generalities necessarily. It moves from generalities to specifics with God. So when you wake up at night, you just say, okay, God, here it is. Here it is. Here's what I need. By the way, I think God enjoys having us plead to him. He does. Matter of fact, if you read the Psalms, you'll see over and over the authors plead, 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 plead. Sometimes it's pleading to sick that person, God. Sometimes it's pleading on their own behalf to be able to go through what's going on and the strength and ability. Now, when you do the first two things and you answer those two questions of what it is you're exhorted not to do and you're encouraged to do, there will be an outcome and there'll be a result. And that's in verse 7. This is God's guarantee. This is not Bob's guarantee. It's the nice director. This is God's guarantee. We will see the outcome or the result of peace. Isn't that what we we're striving for? Not really what we want. None of us wants to walk around 24-7 being people who are anxious and troubled. Our minds are not in where they should be. Our bodies are not where they should be. Just uh, psychologically, we're not where we should be. I mean, we're just not where we should be. We really strive to be people who want this abiding peace. And so this is what Paul says. If you do verse 6, the way God designed it, verse 7, and the peace of God, and notice how he describes this, which surpasses all comprehension. I could add this word, which surpasses all human comprehension or understanding will guard your hearts, it'll be a guard, and it'll guard your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, it keeps you at that point where you're confident and have that peace in God. There, there's something about that. And since the heart is the main area of feelings and emotions, it needs to be guarded. How do we guard it? By giving it to God, trusting Him. Peace is knowing that God is in control, and that is a great protection against the disease of anxiety there becomes this quiet inner confidence tranquility of mind and heart i i love the the book of isaiah the book of isaiah talks about he will keep in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you in other words the, the mind that's on god the mind that's on the word of god that's the mind god will give peace to because we're trusting in him so uh if we're gonna if we're gonna understand this whole aspect of anxieties, we, we have to realize we need to rejoice consistently. It needs to be part of our daily makeup over and over, and we need to pray fervently. We need to be on our knees, uh, talking with God about these things. 
But it's interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there with just rejoicing consistently and praying fervently. There's one other thing that I believe kind of capsulizes all this whole aspect of our anxieties. And third, it means we have to think biblically. We need to think biblically in really two critical areas. But notice what Paul says again in 8 and 9. Finally, let me wrap all this up, he says. Brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, anything of excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And then the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, the apostle, by example, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There are two critical areas when it comes to thinking biblically. Number one, we have to cultivate our minds to ponder biblical truths and virtues. We have to cultivate our minds. It doesn't come easy. If you think you can just sit on the floor in a yoga style and all of a sudden by osmosis, you're going to have all the biblical knowledge and virtues uh, in your heart and mind, it's not going to happen. Okay? I guarantee you. That's not how. We have to cultivate it like a farmer goes out and he cultivates his field. He puts effort and work into that, and God expects us to put some effort and work into cultivating these things we call our minds, which shape our heart and our attitude and then our actions. A biblical mindset evaluates godly characteristics. A biblical mindset is saturated with biblical qualities of living. So what does the Apostle Paul do, do is he lists some virtues. Some biblical qualities. There are six to be exact. And I am confident that this is not a narrowing down of the only things there is. But I think these six things, if you take anything from Genesis to Revelation, you could probably fit them in those six things. Take, I call it taking the Word of God. The, the biblical virtues of the Word of God and having my mind set on it. Again, those things that are true. We're going to find the things that are true. Not out that door. I'll guarantee you, there is no truth out that door anymore. We have, we have said absolute truth is gone in our society. Where are we going to find it? Right here in the church, in the Word of God. So when Paul's talking about that which is true, we've got to come back to the Word of God. That which is honorable and honest and dignified, worthy of respect. We've lost respect in our culture today. That which is right and innocent and holy. That which is pure and, and clean. That which is lovely and gracious, that which is highly regarded and well spoken of. This, from Genesis to Revelation, is where we will find those six attributes, those six virtues of the Word of God. We need to cultivate our minds to start thinking biblically and not humanly, as we often do today. Think biblically, and there's something to be that. And how does Paul say we do that? With one word. And I've underlined it, underline it, circle it, put it in your mind. It's the word dwell. Dwell on these things. Go over them and over them and over them. Saturate yourself with this book. And you will find yourself saturated and clinging to the very principles that Paul talks about here. We need to dwell on these things. Again, it's a command, not a suggestion. To think about it. To take the character of those traits that Paul lists here and think them through. 
to wave him out, to, to judge out what he is saying here over and over and over again. That's why I encourage the, the reading of the God's word and the meditating of God's word and, the, and thinking through that over and over. As we memorize the scripture and take it with us, we can meditate on it and think of it over and over again. Colossians 3 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And he concludes by saying, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. We're going to cultivate our minds over and over and over again. But second, we need to follow the lives of those who lived out biblical truths and virtues. That's what verse 9 is all about. Paul doesn't stop and just say, dwell on the word. Spend your time in the word. But he adds to that, follow those who are following the word. Follow those who are you're seeing the word in their lives. In other words, don't waste your time with people that aren't people of the word and people that have changed lives. Find those people that you can bunny up alongside and follow them. And Paul says, I'm that person. Now, he wasn't boasting. He was just saying by way of an example, you have seen this in me. You've watched it in me. It's been an over and over process that God has been working in my life. Find those kind of people. They're around you. Find them. Because a biblical mindset lives out those traits that are evidenced in godly people. Paul says what you've learned, what you've received, what you've heard, what you've seen in me and others. Follow that. I, I, I love one word in verse 9. It's the word practice. As a matter of fact, I've written alongside my Bible, rejoice, pray, have an attitude adjustment, think biblically, and then practice again and again and again. That's the word here. It's the ongoing tense of do it over, do it over, do it over. Keep doing it. Why? Because the more you do, the more perfected you become of that. Let me give you an illustration. People who know my testimony know that uh, my desire in life was never to be a preacher. That was the furthest thing from my mind. My goal since I was nine years old all the way through high school was to be a major league baseball player. Uh, and I... I, uh, I I strove day after day after day. My parents lived on four acres. My dad had built a backstop and a field. Uh, and when I came home from school and did the work that I'm supposed to do uh, to get by, I would be right out in the baseball field. And I would be out there in center field and I would be chucking baseballs day after day, moment after moment, hitting that plate in one throw or one bounce to the catcher. And I would run the bases. And literally, you could watch me run the bases, slide, pop up, just like the pros. Slide, pop up. I got it perfected. Um, it, it's just something. I practiced it over and over and over again. My high school uh, coach uh, had a nickname for me out in the field. It was called the Gutty Flyhawk because I loved to run and chase balls. I practiced. Paul is saying... Don't go out in the field and think that you're going to get spiritually equipped. But practice following the word. Practice following people. That's what's going to matter. And when we do that, 
the conclusion of the Apostle Paul is that the God of peace will be with you. Not only will you have peace, but you'll have the peace that God is with you. You see, my friends, worry and anxiety stole definitely a toll on our lives. Uh, they will make us old before our years. There's no doubt about it. Uh, they, will, they will keep us awake at night. And there, there's much to worry about today. Uh, if I wanted, I could worry about my grandkids growing up in a society that I wonder where it's going to be in another 20 years. Uh, there's a lot to, a lot to worry, a lot of anxieties, uh, a lot of things in our lives from the personally to, to work, to schools, to uh, the culture we live in. Um, it's just amazing. But we're called as Christians to rejoice consistently. We're called to pray fervently. We're called to think and meditate biblically. I close with this story. There's a story that's told uh, back in 1886, Daniel Towner was leading uh, music during one of uh, D.L. Moody's preaching campaigns in Massachusetts. Uh, during the service, a young man stood up to give a testimony, and he said these words, I quote, I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey today. That, that was his, his testimony uh, after listening to Moody. I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. John jotted down the words and he sent them to his friend John Samus, who was a Presbyterian pastor. Samus, using the words of this short testimony, wrote to him that we know today as, at least I think you know, trust and obey. There's some churches that don't know that because they don't sing the old hymns. Trust and obey. As he wrote to him, he considered the different areas of our life and how we need to trust God. There are a couple of stanzas that go this way. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still with all who will trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt nor a fear, I could probably add, or worry or anxiety. Not a sigh nor a tear can abide when we trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. And I think we could probably put be joyful in Jesus but to trust and obey. What are some of the ways you can find to develop biblical, godly ways for a joyful attitude? How can we begin or continue to exercise a thankful attitude in prayer as a regular habit? Maybe a, maybe a journal of how God's working. Maybe a, a prayer journal. Uh, we need to practice more and more just pondering and, and stopping long enough to ponder the Word of God and the biblical truths of Scripture and think those through and say, God, cement those to my heart so that when I face life situations that will inevitably come with things that are going to be thrown at me to cause me to worry and be anxious, that I then can have that peace that passes all comprehension. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you this morning. We all struggle if we're honest, with anxious thoughts at times, uh, with those things that would divide our loyalty of trusting you with trusting or untrusting the situations. Father, I pray that each one of us would find ourselves day by day um, making it a habit to be joyful and trust you that you're the sovereign God of all things. We would be on our knees uh, day by day and moment by moment to lift up before you uh, those things that are troubling us. 
that we would uh, day by day and moment by moment be people of the word uh, that are thinking and uh, because we're, we're pondering uh, the biblical truths that you've given to us. There's nothing more important outside the word for our daily living. And we pray that you would take the spirit of God that lives and resides within our hearts to guide and direct us that we might be an example to those that are watching us so that they can practice what they have seen in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.